Why are we here today? Well, the answer should seem obvious. We're here to worship. After all, this is a what? A worship service. But how do we know what we're doing here is actually worship? And could we do something else and still be worshiping? You know, there's a lot of controversy today about the, the best or the proper form worship should take. Some believe worship should be formal. Others, that it should be informal. Some insist that traditional forms of worship are best. Others like a more contemporary service. Churches have actually split over the issue. And some churches do both. They have two worship services on Sunday. And not always to accommodate the crowds, often simply to provide different styles of worship. But what constitutes worship? Are there certain elements that must be included in a service in order for that service to be a worship service? And if we do refer to one particular service as the worship service, does that mean worship is something that takes place only one hour a week and exclusively in a special room, a sanctuary? Well, there are lots of questions. So where do we go for answers? Well, obviously, we go to the Bible. But what does the Bible have to say about the place and form of worship? Well, our text for today begins with a verse that seems to indicate there are regulations for worship and that there is a special place where worship is to take place. In Hebrews 9.1, we read, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now when we read, Now even... The first covenant had regulations and an earthly sanctuary. We get the idea that any subsequent covenants also had regulations for divine worship and an earthly sanctuary. And we do find those in the Old Testament, but we don't find any in the New Testament. So why not? Well, surprisingly, the answer may be found in the translation of Hebrews 9.1 itself. And even more surprisingly... Maybe the NIV does a better job of translating this verse. Ooh, <laughs> big confession here. It leaves the word even out of it, and it's not really in the text. It's, it's an interesting phrase in Greek, and they leave it out. It reads, now the first covenant had regulations of worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. That would seem to indicate that there are none in the second covenant. And since we can't find any, I think that's probably the case. Well, if it is the case, why is that so? Why are there no longer any regulations laid out in Scripture for worship? Why are no special places designated in the New Testament, where worship must take place. Well, maybe the best way to find out is to take another look 
at the earthly sanctuary that was present in the first covenant and the regulations concerning worship that did exist. And if we can come to an understanding of them and what they could and could not do, perhaps we'll be better able to understand worship in the new covenant, the second covenant. And guess what? That's exactly what our author does for us in Hebrews chapter 9. He begins with a look at the old place of worship. Hebrews 9, now verses 2 through 5. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, the original recipients of this letter were quite familiar with the tabernacle. And since our author is only mentioning it in order to contrast it with a more perfect tabernacle, he sees no need to elaborate on it. But since we're not all that familiar with it, unless, of course, we've just finished the ladies' Bible study, perhaps it would do us good to take a close look at it. And if you're following along in the manuscript, I don't have a picture of the tabernacle in there, but in the outline there is one. So now you can work between both of them to just kind of keep you familiar. I want us to get a picture of the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle, you may recall, was a portable structure that God directed Moses to construct while the children of Israel were traveling to the promised land. It was a sanctuary that enabled God to dwell among the people. It served as a physical representation of God's heavenly abode. And if it were built according to his instructions and properly constructed, God agreed to fill it with his presence and to meet there with representatives of the people. Now, the structure itself consisted of an outer court, 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. It was surrounded by a seven and a half foot high wall of white linen that represented the wall of holiness that surrounds the presence of God. The tabernacle or tent itself was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. It was divided into two sections or two separate tabernacles. One was 30 by 15 and the other a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. The first room was usually referred to as the holy place and the second as the most holy place or holy of holies. The two rooms were separated by a curtain, a veil, referred to in our text as the second veil, to distinguish it from the first veil that covered the opening to the tabernacle as a whole. 
Now, we're not going to go into all the details of how the walls and curtains and supports were constructed and fastened, even though every detail is specifically given by the Lord. And you can read about that in the 26th chapter of Exodus. It's, it's very, very detailed. But we're not going to go into all of how it's all put together. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing structure. But I think we should briefly mention each piece of furniture that was integral to worship in the tabernacle. The first two furnishings weren't in the tabernacle itself, but were in the outer court. And even though they aren't mentioned in our text, they were vital to what took place in the tabernacle. The first object to be encountered was the brazen altar. This altar was seven and a half foot square and four and a half foot high. It was made of acacia wood and was covered with brass, and the sacrifices were offered on this altar. Then right before the first veil leading into the tabernacle stood the laver. The dimensions for this piece of furniture aren't given, but it was fashioned from brass mirrors and served as a receptacle for water used by the priests for ceremonial cleansing before entering the tabernacle. Once inside the first room of the tabernacle, the first thing to be noticed would be the seven-branched lampstand made entirely of gold. The lamp was fed a continuous supply of olive oil and was kept constantly burning. Since there were no windows in the tabernacle, it provided the light that was needed. On the right side of the room was to be found a gold table, three foot long, one and a half foot wide, and just over two foot high. On it were 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The sacred bread, or showbread, was to be set continually before the divine presence and was changed every Sabbath. Then right in front of the second veil was the altar of incense. It, too, was made of acacia wood, sheathed in gold and measured one and a half foot square and three foot high. On it, the incense was burned, symbolizing the prayers of the people rising to God. Now, our text actually identifies the altar of incense with the Holy of Holies, and this has caused a bit of a problem because it was actually located in the holy place, not in the Holy of Holies. But our author doesn't really say it was in the Holy of Holies, merely speaks of it as belonging to the Holy of Holies. And since it stood right before the veil and smoke from it entered behind the veil, I think it's appropriate for him to so identify it as being part of the Holy of Holies. But within the Holy of Holies itself was just one piece of furniture. The most important of all, the Ark of the Covenant. It was basically a box about four foot long and almost two and a half foot high and wide. It, too, was made of acacia wood, but it was covered both on the inside and the outside with gold. The lid to the ark, referred to as the mercy seat, was made of solid gold. And upon it were two solid gold cherubim, angels with their wings arching over it. Within the ark were placed a golden jar containing a sample of manna, the bread that God miraculously sent to the Israelites while in the wilderness, Aaron's rod or his staff that budded to let the people know that his family alone 
was to be the priestly family and the stone tablets upon which were engraved the Ten Commandments, the heart of God's covenant with Israel. And it was here, above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that God said he would meet with representatives of the people. Now, these pieces of furniture were obviously of great value, both intrinsically because of the gold used in their construction and symbolically because they served as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. You see, the tabernacle itself pictured the heavenly abode of God and actually gave him a sanctuary on earth. And the furnishings were designed to provide access to his presence. So let's see how worship took place in this earthly tabernacle, verses 9 through, or 6 through 10. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they only relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Well, obviously, worship that took place in the tabernacle was highly structured and very ritualistic. Everything had to be done just so. And not everyone could do everything. In fact, God's people as a whole couldn't even enter into the outer court. They could only stand outside and look in. The priests and Levites were the only ones who could enter into the court and participate in the sacrifices that took place. Only the priests could enter the holy place to trim the lamp, change the bread, and burn incense before the Lord. And only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and could do that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, after proper preparation, he would first enter the Holy of Holies with incense to cloud the mercy seat. Then he would enter again with blood of a bull and sprinkle it on and around the mercy seat to cleanse himself of any sins that he might have committed in ignorance, sins of which he was not aware. He would then return a third time with the blood of a goat and sprinkle it on behalf of the people and their sins of ignorance. And that was it. That was it. That was the only access man had to the presence of God. 
In spite of all the ceremony and ritual and expense, only one man could actually come into God's presence once a year. In reality, the author tells us the Holy Spirit is through this signifying to us that the way into the holy place, into the presence of God, had not yet been disclosed. Not as long as the earthly tabernacle was standing, or at least had standing in the eyes of the worshipers. So instead of providing free access to God for his people, the tabernacle and all its ritual actually cut people off from the presence of God. They could not get to him. They couldn't even enter the outer court of the tabernacle. The way had not been opened up for them. And the tabernacle, which was constructed to allow God to dwell with his people, actually kept him separate from all but one of them. Besides that, the gifts and sacrifices they were required to make really didn't give the worshiper a clear conscience before God. If anything, those offerings served to make them feel more guilty. They were constant reminders of their sinfulness. When in reality, all they could do was make the worshipers ceremonially clean anyway. Most of the offerings and washings had to do with what they ate or drank or touched, things that defiled them physically. They dealt with the externals and didn't really deal with the heart of the worshiper. So for all its form and ceremony, worship in the tabernacle could not meet the deepest needs of man. It couldn't change his heart. It couldn't give him a clear conscience before God, nor provide him with free access to God, real fellowship with his creator. So why did God ordain it? Why did he go to all the trouble outlining what had to be done for one person to come into his presence once a year? Quite simply, God did it to make the people realize just how difficult it is for people to have fellowship with a perfect God. And to make them realize that a relationship based on external observations could never be perfected between God and man. Something more was needed. In fact, a total reformation was needed in the way men come before God. And that change came with Christ. As high priest... He opened up the way to true worship in the perfect tabernacle in the very presence of God. Verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, 
He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify them for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Christ, as our high priest, didn't enter the presence of God through an earthly tabernacle and its ceremonial furnishings. He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, one not of this world. He entered the true holy place, the actual abode of God, by passing through the spiritual realms that led to God's very presence. And his acceptability before God as our priest wasn't purchased with the blood of goats and calves. His right to enter on our behalf came through his own blood. And not only did that blood give him the right to appear before God on our behalf, but it gave to us personal access to God as well, eternal access, eternal redemption. And this was accomplished by one sacrificial act on his part. One sacrifice that completely broke down all barriers separating us from God. One sacrifice that can do what the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could never do. Now, they could provide ceremonial cleansing for the flesh, but Christ's blood can actually cleanse our conscience. If we will let him apply his blood to our life, he will rid us of all sin. He will give us a new nature. He will take us then cleansed into the very presence of God. This is amazing. This is amazing. As we study further into Hebrews, we'll, we'll come to understand this even better. But for now, just accept it by faith. Christ can do for us what no one else can do. He can give us a clean conscience before God. We don't have to question the effectiveness of his sacrifice. We know it has washed away our sins and that frees us then to serve him without restrictions. And service is worship. In fact, the word translated serve in verse 14 is simply the verb form of the noun translated worship in verses 1 and 6. We worship God by serving him. True worship is serving God. Now, didn't Paul tell us in Romans 12 to present our bodies as living sacrifices? And that doing so is our spiritual service 
of worship. The primary definition of worship is simply service. Now, it is true that there are other aspects of worship as well. The 13th chapter will speak of a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. So verbal praise of God through singing and speaking can also be a form of worship. And in fact, any act of reverence is a form of worship. So it's okay to refer to this service as a worship service, as long as we don't delude ourselves into thinking that what we do here on Sunday morning is all there is to worship. What we do here is designed to equip us for a life of worship, a life of service. It's a means to an end. And not an end in itself. So honestly, you don't come here to worship so much as you come here to learn how to worship all week long. That's what we do here. That's why we study the word. You know, the forms and rituals and ceremonies of the first covenant were reminders that the people had very limited access to God. And if we become overly concerned with forms and rituals and ceremonies today, they can hide from us the reality that we have been given free access to God 24 hours a day, wherever we are. To serve God in all that we do is the highest and holiest form of worship there is. And our service can be performed freely in the presence of God because we have been cleansed by the blood of His Son. We've been washed whiter than snow. That's what makes our worship our service, acceptable in God's sight. Now, we don't work our way into God's favor. We don't do lots of good things to make him love us. <laughs> he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he made it possible for us then to live lives that honor him freely and openly is a daily and hourly act of worship. Without that, all our good works are nothing but filthy rags. Isn't that what Isaiah tells us? They're totally unacceptable to God. Even if we go through all kinds of ceremonial hoops and, and wear special clothing and do special things. None of that means a thing to God. We haven't been cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's the only thing that brings us into his presence. All that took place in the old covenant was to teach us that there was no access to God until the perfect Lamb of God came.
a hard lesson to learn. It took thousands of years for God to convince his people of that. And sadly, there are still thousands of people today who don't understand that. They think they've come to worship and they've done their duty and now they go home. No, no, no. You come here to learn how to live a life of worship. That is what worship is all about. No matter what we do, outside of Christ is totally unacceptable to a holy God. And even a worship service that might be packaged in an upbeat, emotionally charged service means nothing. If it doesn't come from hearts that have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But once we have been cleansed and given access to his presence through Christ, God accepts our worship no matter what form it takes, as an expression of our love for him. But again, the flip side of that is that if you are here today and think you are worshiping God without having first been cleansed by the blood of Christ, your worship is unacceptable. Before you can worship here or anywhere else, you must be cleansed. And that cleansing comes only through Christ. So if you need cleansing, real moral cleansing, come. Let him wash you and make you whiter than snow.